this is Jennifer. And this is Paige. And this is Big Book Energy. Thanks for coming back for another another episode. I was going to try and come up with an adjective for that, and then my brain's not working. So. <laughs> I appreciate another the Another stellar episode. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so last Friday, or this past Friday, we released our bonus episode for the month of September on Hidden Figures, so the shortened version is live for everyone to listen to, and the longer version is available on our Patreon, but that is not our final episode of September. No. That is this week, so Paige, what book you love are we going to be talking about today uh apparently one that not many other people loved as much as i did um but it is the blueprint <laughs> by azuma zenit khan and i am so sorry for probably butchering that name um asuma zanit khan i think hmm yeah um yeah so based on reviews not quite as popular. Yeah, um, yeah. I but. just, I remember when I was, I was putting together the sneak peek for September and um, I needed like a little like blurb about the book um, for the blog post. And so obviously this isn't my week, so I, it's not my book that I picked. I hadn't read it, hadn't heard of it. Um, so I went to Goodreads to go take a look and... Um, I think overall the the star rating is not bad on the book, no. uh, but it was definitely very very divided in the review section. It was like there was a lot of like five stars, and then there were like a lot of one and two stars. Yeah. Um. So reading some of them, I was like, "Wow, okay." I'm like, "This kind of sounds like a problematic book," but of course I hadn't read it for myself, so I was very interested to see, um, what you have to say about it. So. Yeah, well, uh, we'll get into that a little bit, I think. Um, yeah. I would say that there are probably some very good points for the people who didn't like it. Um, you know, I, I kind of get that, but mm. I, don't know, I, I thought it was cool. So Yeah, yeah. I guess it is time to move into Folio Facts. All right. Folio facts um, for this week. The actually, so we had to postpone our recording time slightly, and I assume that's because you were still working on stuff. But I was also still working on my folio facts um, segment. I got really sucked into this one, and it's funny because it's something that I actually was already aware of, and I think you will be. Too. And actually, probably a lot of our listeners, because I think about half of them are our co-workers, so they'll probably, probably also yeah. know about this. Um, today, in Folio Facts, we're going to have a little, little intrigue, and mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about Gregory Priore. Now, you may or may not recognize that name, but you probably will recognize the story that I'm going to start talking about. <laughs> okay. So, um, Gregory Priore, or at least the event that he is involved in, 
is actually pretty well known in our field because we work in university special collections and archives. Mm. Um, but maybe the other half of our listeners that don't work in university special collections and archives will not have heard about this. And it's a fascinating story um, that we could probably actually talk about for a long time. But I'm going to try and keep this to an actual segment. So maybe that's my bad. Maybe we can talk about this more later. I don't know. Um, so Gregory Priore worked at the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh. Oh, yep. <laughs> yep, there it <laughs> that's is. That's all you had to say. <laughs> all right, I'm caught back up. Um, Priore worked at the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh since I believe it was either 1991 or 1992. Yeah, so Priori got an MA in history and an MLIS and was hired at the Carnegie Library shortly afterwards. Um, Now, if you're unaware of the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh, um, it's a public library. It was founded by um, Andrew Carnegie. I think that's his first name. Andrew Carnegie, um, who was, you know, one of those, like, mega millionaires of America's golden age. Yeah. I think, was Carnegie steel? Iron steel? Yeah. I think. Yeah, Carnegie was steel. He, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Um. So obviously you had like J.P. Morgan, who was like the banker, and then you had mm-hmm. Rockefeller, and then you had Carnegie. and um. So yeah, one of the big figures of the golden era. And while, you know, Carnegie is a little notorious for, you know, how he treated striking workers and that sort of thing. He also had a huge um, philanthropic legacy, and the Carnegie Library is one of those. Um, So many of the materials were actually originally donated by Carnegie or his wealthy friends. Yeah, and it's just generally known as having a very prestigious collection of rare materials. Um, So the fact that Priore was hired to work um, the reading room desk. Um, it's kind of a big deal. It's it's a prestigious um, institution, and working the reading room desk, as we very well know, is um, one of the main sources of security for many special collections and archives. Mm-hmm. Um, so Priore worked that position for decades. <laughs> um. And uh, it wasn't until 2016 that the Carnegie decided to hire consultants to conduct an audit of their inventory. Um, The work actually began in 2017. Um, Things are rather slow moving in the library biz. (laughs) Um, So the actual audit began in 2017. And within an hour of the two auditors beginning their work, they had some very disturbing information to relay to the library's administration. Um, What they found over the course of several days um, as they continued to conduct their audit was that many of the library's most valuable items were either missing or mutilated, having had pages and pages removed um, from the original bindings. So some of these items, um, there was a first edition of Isaac Newton's um, Principia Mathematica, 
um, mm-hmm. which is one of his most important works. Um, so there was a first edition that was just straight up missing. Um, there were also first editions of works um, written by John Adams, um, Thomas Jefferson. There was a signed copy of a work by Thomas Jefferson that was missing. Oh, no. um, priceless maps had been yeah. literally removed um, from a very famous and rare atlas. Um and there was also one of the, one of the other items of note. Um, there was a volume of photogravure. Photogravure. I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Um, it was. It's a odd mix of print and photography um, yeah. of Native Americans that was done um, by a really famous um, ph- photographer who was trying to capture um, Native American dress in full color. Um, one of the only editions that still exists. A lot of those pages had also been removed from the original binding. Um, in total, they found about $8 million worth of missing items, um, from the Carnegie's collection. And, you know, we, the auditors were saying that they gave, um, they gave these items a dollar value, um, but in fact, many of them were priceless because they were either the only existing edition mm-hmm. or one of the very few remaining existing editions. And unfortunately, for some of those volumes, they were essentially destroyed because so many pages had been removed from them. Um, so that's when an investigation began. <laughs> um and what do you know? It was Greg Priore. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was yeah. an inside job, an inside job, which actually is is not all too surprising in usually the is. special collections word world. It, yeah, you're right. It it usually is. Um, it's just a lot easier uh, for an insider to be able to steal. So especially they they made this point in one of the articles I was reading. Um, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. If it was just a, a one item or a couple items or lesser known items that were less valuable, you could write it off. Um, I believe Priore's, when he first got hauled in to admin, um, he was talking about how he left, you know, certain staff members alone in the space, how um, workers, like, you know... Um, Maintenance workers and stuff had been in the space, possibly without supervision. Uh-huh. Um, anyone who works in a special collections will be familiar with that process of vetting everyone who has been in the space if something turns up missing. Um, but the the amount of items and the worth of the items definitely suggested that this was not someone who just had a couple of unsupervised minutes in the space. Like this was definitely something that had um, been done by someone who had access. Um, Eventually Priore would end up confessing to the theft. It turns out that he had actually teamed up with local antiquarian and bookshop owner, John Schulman, um, who owned a very famous rare bookstore, um, like 10 minutes away from the Carnegie Library. And he had been um, Priore's fence for almost 20 years. The, these thefts had occurred over almost 20 years. Um, and so Schulman, it's, 
is actually kind of insane. Um, so most of the time when books are stolen, um, the thief will go to great lengths to remove any signs that the book was previously owned by an institution. So um, if you've never been in a special collections, um, usually books will have, you know, some kind of book plate in the front or they'll be stamped, um, you know, property of, you know, whatever the institution is. Um, so a lot of times thieves will try and bleach the stamps out. They'll try and remove the book plates, whatever. Shulman didn't do any of that. He just stamped it with a little red stamp that said removed from collection or withdrawn from collection or something like that. Oh. <laughs> um, so dick. when the Carnegie... <laughs> yeah, I know. He didn't even try. He didn't even try. <laughs> um, he was... Yeah, he was really arrogant. I mean, I guess, like, that worked, right? Cause, yeah, like, I mean, it worked for assume, 20 years. You would assume, like, oh, you know, if there's a stamp on here that says withdrawn, because that is what that is what libraries do when they get mm. rid of books, is they get stamped withdrawn. Um, yeah, so apparently Shulman is actually kind of a, a big deal in the bookselling world, too. So he was, like, a member of the, I think, Antiquarian Booksellers Society of America or Association of America. He was, like, on the board of governors for, like, his local chapter um, of that society or association. Um, he had worked as an appraiser for many other institutions in the area. He was on Antiques Roadshow page. Yeah, I heard about that. Antiques Roadshow. Okay. <laughs> Like, he's kind of a big deal, kind of high profile. Yeah, and uh, not the person who should be your fence. He's, you know, he's running a crime ring out of his bookshop. Um, so, yeah, basically, as soon as um, Priore heard that the institution was going to run an audit of the inventory, he knew that the gig was up for him, essentially. Um... So they had stopped selling as soon as they found out that um, an audit was going to be done, which apparently Priori had tried to argue against, um, saying that it, like, wasn't necessary or something. I can't remember what justification he used. Um, but they decided to do one anyway. <laughs> as they should have. Um, and, yeah, so eventually it just all came out. Um, they were arrested, and it was actually really recently, I think, like, um, this summer, that they were um, convicted. And because of coronavirus, they were not sent to prison. Both of them got several years of house arrest and uh, many years of probation instead. So... They no. should be in prison. <laughs> Just that like, fills me with a great sense of rage. Yeah, no, a lot of people were really upset about those sentences. Um, but, you know, I mean, understandable, you're not going to be sending... Um, but yeah, yeah, when prisons in the United States are already, like, so full, and obviously the concern for spreading a pandemic disease around them is high if they're crowded. That's you know, fair. I understand why that decision was made, but, like house arrest man they're getting away with stealing millions of dollars worth of stuff which by the too. way priori still did not have that much money 
yeah, I remember reading that in the book, and it's like, yeah. are you, you're doing everything wrong. Yeah, like, um, the one of the articles I was reading was talking about how, I mean, all four of his children were going to, like, private institutions, um, and he was still, like, late on tuition payments for them. He was, like, four months behind in rent at one point. And I was like, what are you... They weren't, like, living, like, lavishly or anything. And right. I was just like, you're not asking for enough money to be doing this, first yeah. of all. No. Um, no. Considering all the stuff they took was worth $8 million. Um, yeah. Just really strange. Um, that's That was his justification for stealing everything, was that he was trying to stay afloat. And I'm like, why didn't your kids just get loans? I mean, I know that, like, no one wants $200,000 worth of debt from their degree. But, like, if they didn't want $200,000 worth of debt, then they could have just gone somewhere else. Like, I don't... Mm. But, yeah, um... I think Shulman got four years of house arrest and Priore got three. So, uh, yeah, that's that's Greg Priore and the Carnegie Library theft. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. The Carnegie Library theft. There's other, like, really interesting library slash special collections thefts, and maybe I'll try making this into, like, a series or something. So, yeah, that's Folio Facts. Good times. All right, well, let's get into a summary about some more assholes destroying books. All right, so summary for today. Like I said, we're going to be talking about The Bloodprint. Um, so one of the reasons I, uh, I picked this book up like maybe five years ago, I think. Um, like the tagline for this book is... The only defense against the ignorance of men is the brilliance of powerful women. So I was like, shit, yeah, I'm in. Like, That sounds great, right? I'm sold. And then it's part of the, the series is called The Corrigian Archive. Like, okay, yeah. The Bloodprint Archives, is a book. Yeah. yeah, okay. I'm sold. Like, I'm going to read this book, no problem. Yeah. Um, I picked it up, and... I gotta say, um, I am describing this book... Because it is book one of the series. Um, but, as we said before, there were some people who had some complaints about this book. And one of the major bones to pick is about the writing style. And I actually agree with that. Um, hmm. Yeah, but, I think it was like info dumpy is something that I saw a lot. Like they, hmm. had, they were critiquing like the world buildings, I guess. She does do a lot of, like, um, exposition instead of sort of naturally unfolding some hmm. some of the, the world building. This It's an interesting world building thing, but there's a lot that's left ambiguous. Um, but then there's also, like, pieces where you're just getting, like, a whole lot of information about legends and, like, religion and groups of people. And, it, you know, it, it's... It's not the best writing style. However, book two, mm. The Black Khan, is so much better. Um, so I think mm. that it was just, this was, um, her technique got better, is really what it comes down yeah. to. Um, uh, part of that is because of her background. She actually holds a PhD in international human rights law, 
um, specializing in military intervention and war crimes in the Balkans. So some of that info mm. dump might just be like the PhD in her giving you all the information. It, it's, it's giving not, you historiography. It's giving you historiography. It's not really like <laughs> the narrative style that you're expecting. Um, so like, I didn't have too much of an issue with it. I know that's not everyone's um, cup of tea. So if that's your complaint with it, fair. Give book two a solid try, though, because um, it does get better. Let's get into the story. Um, there's a few things I want to talk about before we actually get into the story. Um, and that is world building, mostly. Um, particularly the magic. So this, the magic in this world is based around something called um, the claim. The claim is basically a religious text, and reciting it sort of results in being able to use magic. Um, but it's not like everyone can do it. It's not like you just read the words off of the page and then all of a sudden magic happens. Like you have to have a deeper mm. understanding of what the words are saying. There's like, there's a meaning behind it. It's, it's a religious text. Um, so having this sort of deeper knowledge is what enables you to use magic. Also, there's rampant illiteracy. So being able to read in the first place is kind of a big deal. Um, so there's that. Um, and there are a few major groups that you're going to want to try and keep track of. Um, there's a lot of, like, tribes and other smaller groups that, you know, we'll get into as we, we go along. The big ones you'll need to keep track of are, first and foremost, the Companions of Hera. Uh, the Companions are a group of women who have studied the claim, and they're really committed to fighting off the forces of the Talisman. Talisman's group, too. Uh, the Talisman is a group of assholes who are committed to burning books, enslaving women, and general fuckery. Um, hmm. They, like, take people's religious artifacts, items, and they keep them for themselves as power. They, you know, they burn books, they spurn illiteracy, they destroy monuments. Um, so far they've done a pretty good job of dominating the people of Corazon, I think is what it's called. Uh, whenever I was listening to the audiobook, it, was, it sounded closer to Horizon without the K, mm. um, yeah. which is probably uh, Arabic, Farsi, Middle Eastern language uh, influence that yeah. I unfortunately yeah. know nothing about, so I'm really sorry I'm going to butcher a lot of these names. I'm going to go with Horizon because uh, I'm a dumb American. Sorry. <laughs> um <laughs> We so, apologize for this, like, every week. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry I'm not better educated in other languages. <laughs> My public schooling education has failed me. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so they're dominating Corazon, um, which is the, the area that we're, we're sort of talking about here. Um, and then someone else we kind of need to keep track of, and this is someone named the Authoritarian. Um, and he is a leader of the lands in the north on the other side of this gigantic wall that people have built, and he controls a large territory, and he has some pretty shady dealings with the Talisman. Um, and mm -hmm. we will get into him later, and his group of soldiers called the Adath, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of groups in here. We'll get to them later. Um, 
one last thing that I want to mention before we sort of get into the meat of this book is that this world building very obviously is based on the Middle East. Um, literally, if you look at the map in the beginning of the book, and if you yeah. don't recognize it as the Middle East, it's because you've literally never seen a map before. I mean, it is literally the Middle East with different names. Um, <laughs> It's not like a metaphor. It is the Middle East. Um, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She copied the map. Um, so Khorazan is roughly where Afghanistan is now. The Talisman sort of controls what I think is Pakistan. Um, and there are the lands of the Negus, which is Africa. Uh, on the other side mm -hmm. of the Sea of Reeds, which is the Red Sea. I mean, it's it's all there. Um, all of your characters, like, they wear turbans, they wield scimitars, um, the claim is basically the Quran, um, like, yeah. there's, there's a lot of Middle Eastern culture in this, so just sort of, if you're looking for a reference point, that's where it is. Now let's talk about the actual story. Uh, so it starts out with our main character named Arian, and another companion of Hera, Sienna, uh, basically destroying a slave trade line and liberating some women who were being transported to be sold into slavery. Mm. That's how it opens. Um, so Arian is sort of our focal point. She is a high-ranking member uh, of the Companions of Hera. Her title is actually First Oralist, so she's kind of the biggest badass out of the bunch. There's only one person that sort of outranks her, and that is the High Companion. Okay. Uh, who is in charge of all of Hera. So she's got one person above her. Um, also, we're just going to have to get this out of the way. She's apparently drop-dead gorgeous, so just be prepared for men falling at her feet. That's kind of what happens. Um, Sienna is assigned to be, like, the person that goes with her everywhere. And she is from Negus, so she is African. Um... She's also described as being very pretty, but nothing compared to Arian. Um, you'll see that brought up again and again. Yeah. So they storm this slave trade line. Uh, they basically kill the men who are about to sell these women into slavery. They free all of the women and also this boy who is helping the men transport these women there. Um, and the reason that Arian and Sienna don't kill him is because he's a slave himself. Uh, and has very obviously been abused and beaten into this form of life. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he's just a kid. They, they let him go. The kid hates them for this. He's just known nothing but basically cruelty his entire life. So he's not yeah. exactly warmed up to these women coming out of nowhere and killing a bunch of people in front of him. The only ones that he's ever really known. So yeah, keep him in mind. Um, this doesn't really stop Arian and Sienna. This little kids hate. They, uh, go on their way to get something called the sacred cloak. Now the cloak is one of those religious artifacts I mentioned earlier that the talisman is corrupting to keep people in their place. Um, they hate women. You know, it's, it's 
not a good place for a bunch of women to be. So mm-hmm. naturally, Arian and Sienna go waltzing right into enemy enemy territory to this uh, town called Candor. And in Candor, they go to meet one of Arian's friends. I'm doing air quotation marks there. Um, <laughs> named Dianar. Dianar. I don't know. Uh, Dianar, sure. Yeah, let's go with that. Sounds good. Um, so he happens to be someone called the Silver Mage, uh, which is a position of high authority. He's not really associated with Council of Hera, because that's, you know, women. Um, but he is a magic user himself. He can use the claim. He's keeper of a text called the Candor. Um, so he sort of, like, is this guardian of knowledge as well. Badass fighter. He's also something called an authenticate, so he can tell when you're lying. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is also apparently extremely good looking. And our author will not let you forget that. I, I, that was one of the comments I came across quite often in the reviews. Uh, uh, um, is that <laughs> Sienna refers to him as the beautiful one. Um, yeah. <laughs> so she picks up like immediately that there's some not quite low key sexual tension between Arian and Dianar. Uh, issue being companions of Hera are celibate, as you would expect of a religious order, so I mean there's some problems there, right? Yeah. Um, so there's there's some tension there. Um, and last time Arian and Dianar had, like, met each other, Arian, or, yeah, Arian had just left him. She decided to, she was gonna do her duties as this companion of Hera over being with him. So, like, not exactly happy to see her. He he mad about it. He mad about it. <laughs> she broke his heart. He's and salty. he's gonna sulk about it like a grown ass man. I don't know. Um <laughs> He can be frustrating a lot of the time. Um Yeah, they the reviews said he was an asshole. And they weren't sure why anyone liked him. He wouldn't be my first choice. It doesn't matter how good looking he is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. To each their own, I suppose. I guess. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> uh. Um. Yeah, their relationship is sort of weird and tension-filled. Um. So. So Arian um, is basically like, hey, what's up? Where's the sacred cloak? And he's like, fuck you. Um, also, it's over there. But the talisman not really liking women and particularly uh, member companions of Hera. Mm-hmm. Uh, they end up setting fire to the tavern that Dinar is running whenever they go say hi to him. So he ends up having to like flee Candor. Um, sorry, dude. But... He's already told Arian where the cloak is, so she goes and she actually gets it. It's not very difficult. Um, the guy who's guarding it from the talisman, like, he's mm. part of the talisman to, like, protect the cloak from them, essentially. Um, he sees a companion of Hera and he's like, here you go! So glad someone actually qualified to have this this year. Um, so the thing about the cloak is that, you know, it's a very religious artifact. Basically, essentially, if you you put it on, like, you shouldn't be allowed to 
blaspheme or lie or anything like that. It's a big deal. Um, Arian is using yeah. it essentially as a means to like disprove the talisman's bullshit claims. Um, she's hoping. So she gets a hold of it, and that boy that she had spared from the slave trade thing had followed her and Sienna um, with the intent of getting some revenge on them. But he actually sees the cloak and is moved by its religious significance, and Arian puts the cloak on him, um, and he's just sobbing. Um, but then he actually, like, runs away, because um, the talisman starts coming down on them, and in response, Arian herself puts the cloak on. Kind of like, as a fuck you, I'm a woman, and I can still put this on, and, like, all of you yeah. male assholes can go fuck yourselves. Yeah. Which, again, kind of cool. Um... She uses the claim to sort of, like, put them under a spell so that her and Sienna can get away without being crushed by a mob. Um, she does actually need Dinar's help to get out of it, though. She gets about, you know, within arm's length of the leader of the talisman there with the claim. Again, trying to prove that, you know, women have a place in the talisman on Earth as human beings, that sort of thing. Um, but his... He snaps out from underneath her spell, and it almost, like, grabs her, and Dinar, who's, like, hanging out on top of a mountain, sees it, shoots the dude with an arrow, and then, like, rides off. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? Why are you like this? <laughs> um, either way, it works. That guy doesn't get a hold of Arian. They ride away in two separate directions. Arian and Sienna go back to Hera with the cloak. Um... Because the High Companion, Ilya, has called a meeting of the council, so the highest ranking members of um, this religious order. Mm. And she calls them there. Aryan shows up. There's, like, some weirdness going on um, at Hera. All of the guards that Aryan had trusted whenever she was there have all of a sudden been replaced by these shifty characters who, like have no respect for her personal space and, like, try to invade all of her shit. Things that should be off-limits to these people, because companions of Hera are sort of revered a little bit. Yeah. A lot, yeah. actually. Um, and they have no respect for the, her, and it's not about that shit. Um, so she's, like, on edge. And her and Ilya, the high companion, they have kind of an unspoken power struggle going back and forth there, because Arian is actually very highly regarded. Um, she has an insane amount of skill. She has since she was a child. The entire Council of Hera has been waiting for her to join since she was a very small child. Um, and then Ilya sort of, like, pops up out of the middle of nowhere and is like, oh yeah, I can do all of this just as well as she can. And then she gets, like, promoted to High Companion, but everyone still respects Arian a lot more because Arian's a lot more direct yeah. and Ilya is yeah. a shady asshole. And you find this out because while Ilya is like calling this council together, she slips in this dude into the council chambers. So there's not supposed to be any men there, known as the Black Khan. Now, the Black Khan um, is a shifty character in and of himself, and he is there to sort of like plot things, and you don't really know his intentions. But mm. what has happened is that Ilya, even though she tried to call Arian back before she got the cloak, 
no knew that Arian was going to go and get it no matter what, just ignore her orders, and was counting on it. So she could give the cloak to the Black Khan, because the Black Khan was going to give her the location of something called the Bloodprint. Ooh, there's the title. There's the title. There's the title. <laughs> there's the title. So the Bloodprint is actually like an original version, written version of the claim. There's not mm. a whole lot of these left. Um, companions of Hera are called oralists for a reason. They're responding to an oral tradition. There's not yeah. a lot of the written works of these, you know, the entire claim. Definitely not the entire claim, but certainly like smaller chapters, they're not always there. Um, and he's like, yeah. So I had it in my hand. And they're like, bullshit. So he actually takes the cloak and he puts it on. Remember what I said about lying? Can't lie when you have yeah. a cloak on. Puts a cloak on. It's like, no, I held it in my hand. And then everyone is just like losing their shit because they didn't think that this actually existed. It's like a thing yeah. straight out of legend. It's called the blood print because the guy who was writing it was martyred and his blood is on it. Hence blood print. Um, hmm. So. The Black Khan is like clearly sort of sleeping with Ilya. Um, but totally tries to make a move on Arian in front of all of these women of the High Council. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. The That's whole bold. chastity thing? Yeah, it's bold. It's bold and it's not yeah. appreciated by anyone. Um, Ilya's not happy because her dude's hitting on the first oralist who she hates. The first oralist isn't happy because she's like, I just risked my life to go and get this cloak and you're pulling this shady shit and trying to hit on me in front of all of these people with no respect, fuck you. Um, all the council members are on Arian's side, so they're not happy yeah. about it. But Ilya forces it and she sends Arian with Sienna to go and find the blood print. She's like, fuck, okay, well I have to go. There's another thing I should mention here. So one of the main reasons that Arian is was um, liberating the slave chains is because when she was a young child, the talisman came and attacked her home and they killed her mother, her father, her brother, and they kidnapped her sister. It was probably mm. put on one of the slave trades. So that's yeah. why she's got such a vendetta against them. That's why she like refused Dianar. She's really got to go and do this. And that's kind of like why she has been away from Hera for so long. Yeah. And why... There's a whole lot of shifty shit going on that she doesn't really know about. Well, as she's getting ready to leave for this quest, um, some of the other high-ranking members of the council are like, don't go this way because the High Companion has been sending all of our trusted guards that way and they don't ever come back. So maybe go a different way. Mm. Um, we'll take care of things here, but you need to be on your guard, essentially. Yeah. She's like, okay, fine. Um, so she leaves by a road unexpected. She's going north, so she goes, like, east or something like that. Like, not the way you'd think. Yeah, yeah. Literally, like, 20 minutes out the door, they run into another slave train thing. And Arian being Arian is like, well, I'm not going to pass that up. I don't care about the blood print quest thing. We got to go and save them. Yeah. Lo and behold, she does... Charge right in there. They're so far away that, like, the slavers have enough time to sort of set up a defense against her. And as a result, Sienna is shot with an arrow. Uh, and that becomes important. 
And that boy got captured again, and now he is basically in the same position where he was. Um, yeah. And this time, he stabs the slavers to help Arian yeah. and Sienna. Yeah, um, he does. Yeah, he does. So, they free the women, and the women are like, Here's what you need to know. Um, there's some talisman shit going on here. You've been away for a long time. They're encroaching on this territory. If you go down the road, you're gonna have a bad time. So instead, take the river and go to this secret sort of pass through the mountains. Yeah. Arian's like, okay. Um, go to Hera. You'll be safe there. So they do. Now the boy basically begs Arian and Sienna to take him with them. Um, you know, they're the only two people who ever showed him any kindness, uh, and he argues his way into going with them because Sienna has been hurt, and on the river, they have to go upstream, um, so she can't mm. paddle, so the boy's yeah. like, I can, let me go with you, um, and, like, Arian Cage, she's like, okay, fine, um, what's your name, and you, you get this revelation that the boy doesn't have a name. He's been in slavery since he was a small child. They basically called him by his tribe name. Um, so Arian gives him a name, Wafa, which means loyal friend. So that becomes his, like, calling card. He's like, I will be loyal. So anytime Arian's like, maybe you should not come <laughs> with us, he's like, no, 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 I'm loyal. I'm staying with you. Wafa, I'm coming with you. So that comes back around to bite Arian in the ass pretty quickly. Um... But Waifa ends up turning out to be very um, indispensable. He's, like, sh the... Khan basically says that he's 14 or 15. They would think he's 14 or 15 if he had been well-fed, yeah. so he's probably a little bit older than that. Um, but the kid doesn't complain about anything. He does almost all the rowing himself. He carries his and Sienna's, like, provisions the entire way until they get to this um, tower. As tower is supposed to, like, show the way to the secret pass through the mountains. It's a riddle, because almost everything in this book is. Um, the claim mm -hmm. is, like, a code that, again, you have to have, like, a deeper understanding of, so you have to sort of, like, fit the pieces together to make sense of it. It turns into this whole puzzle thing, where they spend, like, three or four days trying to figure this shit out. But they do. And they find the way up into the mountains. Alright, so they get up into the mountains and they come across like this secret village, essentially, that's like been hidden in the snow. Um, mm -hmm. And they're there for all of like 20 minutes before Talisman finds them because they have really big dogs that track their scent. Um, and Arian didn't think about that. Luckily, these people have some interesting sort of magic that they use um and they go up into like a vanishing point and they've used the magic to hide essentially there's no footprints in the mm. snow um the smell is gone the dogs can't find them but then they try and go desecrate essentially uh, a graveyard and these townspeople that they're with is like that's not cool so they attack the talisman uh Arian tries to go down and help them um, because she feels like she brought this on them. Because she did. Um, <laughs> so 
So she tries to go and help them, and essentially, like, they just get overwhelmed. These people, their defense was hiding. They wasn't fighting. They have no armor. They're yeah. up against an armored force. Um, so there's the commander that's got Aryan like, on her knees in the middle of the snow. And lo and behold, Dianar shows up and Does he kills shoot that guy. The guy with an arrow, too? Or? No! This time he, like, cuts <laughs> okay. off his head and scoops him up. Turns out, actually, that that commander... Um, was a member of Dianar's tribe. Um, mm. Not only that, that commander was Dianar's cousin, but he oh. laid a finger on Arian, and that's not cool by Dianar's standards, though. He's like, yeah, no man's gonna touch you. Not even my own cousin. Like, that's not gonna happen while I'm around. So, like, that's how creepy possessive Dianar can be. I was gonna say, that is weirdly possessive. <laughs> it's, he is extremely possessive, he is extremely jealous, and he's also, at times, slightly abusive, because he's still real pissed off at Arian right now, for the whole, like, mm. choosing her duties because she feels guilty about her sister being captured thing. Um, so, like, he essentially at one point grabs her by her chin, and she's, like, saying that she can feel bruising, going on it's like uh, yes yeah. that's not okay that's not an okay dynamic there just no. gonna get that out there i do have issues with that so while they're riding back to go and meet where sienna and wafa had gone to um hide during this attack because sienna is still injured so she can't really do much Waff is this little slip of a boy who probably weighs 13 pounds soaking wet. It's underfed. So they go and hide. Um, she tells Dianar about her quest to go and get the blood print. Um, so he's like, all right, cool, I'm in. <laughs> so he's slightly less pissed off at her now. No one was asking you, Dianar. <laughs> cool. Except Arian is like so head over heels for this guy that it defies reason. She's like, yes, that's totally fine. You should definitely come with us. Um, yeah, she also is, like, weird about their whole relationship, too, because she's like, um, even though his touch hurt her, she still really wanted, like, just even that amount of touch. Like, um... Okay. That's not... This is This is weird because this is, like... It's seemingly so critical of certain things, and then it just inserts straight-up problematic romance into mm. the story as well. Yeah. It's, it's strange. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, this, this huh. romance okay. is not something to... Do not aspire to this romance. Um, Alright, so... Dianar is now party member number four. Um, so they go a little bit farther into the mountains um, because they're going to go through something called the, what the they're going to go through something called the cloud door uh, or they're going to try to but to go mm. through the cloud door they have to essentially pay their way through from the tribe that guards it um, so the only thing that they can really think of is to go and get this stone. Like, a, I think it's supposed to be like lapis lazuli or something, something similar to that. Mm. It's a sky yeah. blue stone. It's very, very valuable to these people. 
Um, and actually just like generally speaking, but especially to these people because it holds a religious significance. Okay. Only problem is Diana's tribe, which as a whole has allied itself to the talisman, controls that. Which is a problem. So Dianar uh, decides that they're going to do like a little ruse. So he pretends to be bringing Sienna and Arian to these this tribe as prisoners mm-hmm. so that yeah. he can like sneak in as a messenger for the talisman and bring the stuff, uh, the stones back. Um, and then they were all going to bust out of there and it was going to be this great escape plan and then they would have what they needed to trade. So they get there. And immediately, the member of the tribe that's there, like, notices something about Arian, but he doesn't say anything. He's just kind of like, that's weird. Arian realizes that he recognizes her, but they're just kind of like, don't talk about it for a second. Uh, Arian and Sienna get put into a tent with a bunch of other women that have been captured, no, just to find it's out. it's gonna be her sister. No, 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 it's not. It turns out that it's the women from the tribe uh, associated with the Wandering Cloud Door. Um, Mm. They got captured. They got separated from uh, some of the men in their tribe because of a uh, snowstorm. And they were captured by the talisman. As of now, they have not yet been abused um, or sexually assaulted. Largely because of that same commander who recognized Arian. So Arian's like, something's going on here. Dianar negotiates with this guy, and he gets three key pieces of this stone um, that are very, like, beautifully worked pieces of stone. He's like, okay, cool. Um, And then it gets to the point in the night where the commander can no longer hold off the men, and they're going to go in for the women. Yikes, okay. (laughs) So, yeah, Dianar is like, let me go pick first. So he goes in there and he gets Arian. He's like, we got a fucking problem. <laughs> so Arian like goes out with him and they're trying to figure out how they're going to like use the claim to essentially immobilize all the people in this town when all of a sudden the tribe from the Wandering Cloud Door comes up and it's like, nope. The wandering the tribe associated with the Wandering Cloud Door like storms in, they kill all of the like low-ranking members of the tribe and they don't kill. Dianar, that one captain that was, like, pretty cool to all the people. And then this third one who is actually, like, the person overseeing everyone. Um, But that dude's a real asshole, so they kill him real quick. Like, that's that's fine. We're happy about that. Um, Yeah. So, I, Arian for a second had thought, you know, maybe if we free these women, then that will count as our payment um, and passage. But that obviously went sideways. <laughs> um, yeah. So these these tribe members they notice that you know Arian is a companion of Hera, and then furthermore the first oralist, which is like a myth, came out of legend and is now walking among them. So they're just like, "You're awesome. You can totally come with this." So she manages to talk them out of killing Dianar, um, and actually that other commander as well. Um, mm. she's like something that guy knows who I am but didn't out meet all these people we need to talk so she does end up talking to him and his name is Turin I believe so Turin actually was a friend of 
Aryan's mother and father and was the man responsible for pulling Aryan out of the house and safely delivering her to Kira. Um, he essentially pledged himself to Aryan's service, mm-hmm. but Ilya, the high companion, sent him to where he is now in preparation yeah. for Aryan's journey, actually. So Ilya anticipated all of this, which makes Aryan even more pissed off. Like, this bitch didn't tell mm-hmm. me all of this shit and sent me off here and uh whatever. But it yeah. turns out those pieces of blue stone that he had given to Dianar are actually a part of the quest uh, to get the blood print. It's more puzzle pieces. You have to you know, figure out what significance they have. Um, yeah. <laughs> so they can't, they can't trade them is essentially what happens here. Oh, um, yeah. But the lead member of this tribe, Toktor, I think, uh, is also as hooked by Arian's good looks as Dianar is, so his, like, method of approach of if you want payment, uh, after you get done with this whole quest, then come back here and marry me. Um, Sienna's a little bit jealous about this, actually, and she's like, why doesn't anybody want to see me whenever Arian is here? Because she actually thinks the guy's pretty attractive. Turns out that this guy's actually Rus. Um, you're the Russians. The dude's Russian. Um... Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so the people um, of this tribe are actually, like, intermingled genetics, as far as they're telling you. Mm. They think Arian originally is part of the Talisman because she looks like she's a member of the Talisman. Um, Dianar looks like he's a member of the Talisman. That is something that gets brought up pretty often, like people's tribal affiliations, how they look, yeah. genetics, um, the mixing of bloodlines, so like we'll get into that a little bit later because that has to do with the critique that someone brought up. Um, so yeah. We'll, we'll get to that later. Um, anyway, Arian still is like, yeah, no, companion of Hera, and also if I was going to dish my vows, it'd be for that dude over there, not you. Um, like, pretty blunt about it, actually. And Dianar yeah. throws a shit fit because he's like, somebody else wants my girl. Um, so he gets really pissy and, like, takes it out on Irian and it's, it's a whole thing. Um, man-child. So, there's this, like, Essentially, Arian and all of them get away with not having to pay a price to be led across these mountains to the wall, which is where the blood print is. It's behind the wall, under the protection of the authoritarian. Hmm, yeah. Problem. That's where all the slave trade trains are going. So, like, usually people don't want to go north of the wall. Um, so, they get the escort over there without actually having to pay anything. Uh, and there's a little prophecy that goes along with it. Um, it says there's four messengers that are going to go that way. One will be lost and one will die, essentially. So Arian's like, mm. great, I bring destruction everywhere that I go. Because she does. Um, <laughs> it is what it is. So they get on the other side of the wall. And they're trying to do that ruse thing again, which worked so well the first time. Um, yeah, it really did. It did. It did. And you want to know what? <laughs> it works even worse this time. So, <laughs> Dianar and Turin comes with them. 
he's still pledged to Aryan service, so he comes along, um, and they are pretending to like hand over these women with Waifa acting as um, one of one of the guys, and immediately one of the Ada or Adaf that is the the guardian of the wall. It's a Suicide Squad yeah. essentially. Um, like takes one look at Aryan and is like, "That's weird." Let us take you to this house where we put all of the pretty women for the authoritarian. But this one, Sienna, she's coming with me. So Sienna uh, gets cut off from the rest of the group almost immediately crossing the wall. Yeah. Um, yeah. They get to this golden house, which is where they essentially keep, like, the harem. The harem. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's basically, it's a harem. Uh, I was looking for the word. Yeah. It's a harem. Um, where they're, they're teaching all of the girls all of that stupid shit that you expect, like, from a geisha. Um, mm. they're like, they're gonna leave Arian there. But surprise, they, like, extra troops pop up and they take all of the men captive and, uh, they gag Arian so she can't use the claim. Um, she can't speak. So, magic gone. And they, like, push her in there and, like, we're going to send her off to um, this woman called the Khanum. Now, the Khanum is the consort of the authoritarian. And Arian was warned that, essentially, this, this consort is even worse than the authoritarian himself, which, heartwarming. Um, so she's like, shit. Mm. But someone actually, like, breaks her out immediately. Um there's another woman there that was supposed to, like, escort her and make her ready for this travel thing. And she's like, nope, let's go. Um, so they sneak her out. And they actually help her solve one of the riddles that brings her to the place where she finds um, a piece of the blood print. And on this, there is something called the Verse of the Throne, um, which is, like, something out of myth. A very mythical verse of the claim. Um... Yeah. That, like, no one knew. So she reads it real quick and she memorizes it because that's, like, her thing. And then yeah, they tell yeah. her, oh, by the way, your uh, guy friends, they're in something called the bloodshed. And she's like, that's a problem. Um, so she is on her way to try and help them. She finds out that Dianar has escaped. Sienna's nowhere to be seen. So it's Turin and Wafa. Um, and they get put on this platform in front of the entire Adif, the Suicide Squad, to be publicly executed via being drained of blood and then having their bones ground in front of this entire group while they're chanting and all of that. And Yikes. Arian becomes, like, deeply pissed, as you would be. So she, yeah. like, starts going towards this group and she's like not really sure what she's gonna do because the claim isn't gonna take out an entire army or whatever and then they turn and get stabbed um so he dies like in front of her eyes and she fucking loses it and her response is to all of a sudden start chanting that brand new verse of claim she just memorized 10 minutes ago with a whole lot of just like deeply pissed off anger behind it and it does actually kill literally Everyone except for one soldier. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> like, they die, and there's just blood gushing out of all of their ears. So, like, it's very effective. Um, yeah. Jeez. So she gets 
she gets Waffa out of there, um, which is good. And then Dinar shows up, like, hey, what's up? She's like, where the hell were you? <laughs> like, <laughs> Taryn is just dead. left them there to get what executed. What the fuck? Um, and he's like, look, I knew that I couldn't do it. Like, it was kind of iffy if you were going to be able to get to the bloodshed. There's no way I was going to be able to do it. So I went to go and try and find out what was happening to Sienna, because I know how much you care about her. And she's like, okay, that's fair. Um, and he's like, so I found out, and Sienna is being sent to this jail. Now, the woman who helped save Arian from that uh, harem house had also done some time in that jail, yeah. and essentially they, like, hook you up to machines where they pump a whole bunch of drugs into you, and they torture you, and it's it's not, it's not good. It's deeply traumatic. Um, and she's like, shit, well, I'm going to give up on the blood print to go and save Sienna, and luckily the woman who, like, helped her is like, no, 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 I'll go get Sienna out of there, I know the prison better, you need to go take care of the blood print thing. She's like, fine. Okay. So, you just skim over this part because it's more puzzles and, like, that's not really exciting to talk about. But, essentially, they do find where the blood print is. And during this time, Aryan uses the claim a couple more times. Except now, instead of it being, like, this hopeful verse of prayer, it's, like, corrupted and it's all of a sudden killing people. And she's, like, enjoying killing people. And she's like, that's a problem. Um, so much yeah. for your religious text kind of a thing. So she's feeling a little bit iffy about it. Um, but she does get to the blood print after all of this, like, doubt, and she's very hesitant to use the claim throughout this whole thing. Um, she does find the blood print, and she it's being guarded by a group of people called the Bloodless, um, which I think they're all albino. Um, so you, like, you know the Bloodless when you see them. Mm. There's not really a question. Yeah. Important, because... She's immediately captured the second that she gets the blood print. So her, Diana, and Wafa this is are like, like a theme with her. Yeah, she's not good at not being captured. Like at all. No. Um no. <laughs> so she gets brought to the authoritarian, finally. Um, her, Diana, and Wafa. And they get brought into the palace and the blood print is handed over to them, and she's having a moment and um, all of a sudden, the consort of the authoritarian is like, hey, how's it going? It's Arian's sister. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. So Arian has, like, a whole shit bit there. Um, and then not only does she run into her sister there, but the Black Khan <laughs> comes strolling up and is like, hey, there's that blood friend I asked you for, thanks. And it's, like, gone? But he also takes Wafa with him. So, like, the authoritarian is about ready to kill everyone. So the Black Khan gets Wafa out of there. He's just going to take the boy. Um, Dianar, he's, like, sentenced to death. And uh, it finds out that Arian has essentially been, like, brought here because of her sister. Her sister it has, like, foresight or something. So she's arranged all of this. Like, she's just so yeah. excited to have her sister back. But she's, like really cruel. This is not, like, a happy reunion. Um, and that's literally where the fucking book ends. Right there. Mid-action. That sounds like an effective cliffhanger. <laughs> it fucking worked for me. Um, so, that yeah. That sounds very effective. 
it it did work for me. I um I went and I scooped up the black con the second I was able to. Uh, like I said, it it was much better. Um, you spend time in Ashfall, which is the black con's capital. Um, mm. yeah, I I won't get into the plot there. Um, since I reread. Bloodprint, uh, The Black Con is next on my list, and then I actually didn't ever read the third book. It's been sitting on my to-be-read pile, um, so I'm getting to that this month as well. Yeah. Tune in for an update on my next um, BBE bookstore. BBE bookstore, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll probably talk about that then. Um, but yeah, that there ends our summary. Um, so we will... Head on over to BBE Bookstore, uh, and then we'll come back from for some discussion. All right, so we're really switching gears for for the BBE Bookstore compared <laughs> to my folio facts segment for today. All right. Um, so this one will be a little bit different. Alright. Um, I listened to the audiobook of The Little Book of Huga. Little Book of Huga. 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 It's Dutch, so huh. okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> um Public School Education in America. The Little Book of Huga. Huga. It's it's weird. It's spelled H Y G G E, mm. but it's like Huga. Mm. That's the best I can do. Um, it was written by Mike Viking. Nice, hell of a last name. Yeah, uh, it's not it's not spelled like how Americans would think it's spelled. Um, not the Mike or the Viking, but that's how you pronounce it. Is Mike Viking? Hmm. Um, and. Basically, I so I'm assuming that you have not heard of Huga. I have uh, not given your response to this. Yeah, yeah um, I got nothing. Okay, well, I'll tr- I'll try and talk about it because it it doesn't have a direct translation to English, so it'll be interesting to talk about this. Um, but yeah, so I listened to this audiobook. Um, it was actually last week, and it's actually a very quick read or listen. Um, I think it was only about two to three hours of audiobook for me. So hmm. that must be a shorter a shorter length, which it is called a, The Little Book. So, I mean, I guess that, that makes sense. Not false advertising. Um, <laughs> so what is Huga? Um, like I said, it doesn't have a direct translation, um, but kind of an approximation would be like coziness or hominess. Um, I think Google is defining it as a quality of coziness and comfortable conviviality that engenders a feeling of contentment or well-being. Okay. Um, so there is, there is an aspect, like a social aspect to this as well. Um, so in the book, Viking talks about how um, things are typically more huga when they're experienced with small groups of close friends. Hmm. Um, but it's it's this feeling of contentment and happiness 
um, and also like a sense of coziness. So why would you want to write a book about this concept, um, which actually does have other similar concepts in other European countries. Like there are corresponding words that kind of mean about about the same thing. Mm. Um, Well, clearly the Dutch have something figured out um, because they are consistently ranked the happiest nation in Europe um, and one of the happiest nations in the world consistently. Um, And the author is the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute. So he literally, like, researches happiness for a living. Um, That's gonna be a good job. And he credits um, Dutch happiness um, to this concept of Hugo, um, which for me, um, like, I gave, like, a rough translation of, of what it means, but to me, like, definitely... Uh, what I took away from the book is it's like taking pleasure in small everyday things, like going out of your way to really enjoy um, daily experiences that you have and to actually consciously create enjoyable experiences for yourself, mm. um, which sounds great, right? Um, yeah. However, um, this book wasn't quite what I was expecting. So mm. I was kind of expecting not like a self-help book, but right. like something a little more like prescriptive. Um, and instead it was just like a lot of like very specific recommendations for like activities and um, that were like organized by season and then, like, lots of specific recommendations for types of furniture or, like, lighting about how to, like, create a space that's Huga. Hmm. And I guess I just wasn't expecting, like, it to be, like, as specific as it was. <laughs> you know, like, in in October, you go looking for chestnuts. And I'm like, I don't even know if I there are chestnuts <laughs> here. Like, I don't... I don't know. It... It was, like, it was all very, like, Dutch-specific or European-specific, even. And reading through, I didn't feel like I was learning things that I could apply in my own life. At least, you know, in terms of, like, the specific suggestions he had, I didn't feel were super applicable to me. Mm -hmm. But there were larger takeaways and also, I it was interesting because I felt like I was learning a lot about Dutch culture and it more broadly, like, European culture. Okay. So that was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting read. Just reading about... It, basically, like, Dutch people live their lives very differently than Americans do. I mean, duh. I mean, if you didn't already know that, let me just tell you. <laughs> Dutch people live, Surprise. live their lives differently. <laughs> um... And it was just really interesting to learn more about that. And yeah, I mean, to think about like, how can we find more enjoyment in our lives? Because I think definitely Americans do this, but also it happens in other other Western countries where you just get really sucked into um, work and, you know, working all the time and like, you know, the, the grind or, like, whatever the... However the fuck you want to, like, explain it. 
And you often find yourself kind of lacking that sense of contentment with your life because you're just so busy focusing on on the next thing or on what's going on with work, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And Hugo is more about like slowing down and really finding enjoyment in family and friends mm-hmm. and in eating good food, um, you know, creating really enjoyable experiences like, you know, on a cold winter night, you like light a, a fire and like have hot chocolate or something, you know, and like not everyone does those kinds of things every day. Mm-hmm. But what if you did? What if you did? Like if you think about what are the things that make you feel really happy and like warm and cozy and whatever, you know, what if you did actually make a conscious effort to recreate those experiences on a more like frequent basis? Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, it was an interesting quick read. Um, definitely makes me want to like experiment more. Um, you know, I'm not going to be, like, going out and buying a bunch of new furniture. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what was suggested in the book. <laughs> I'm not going to be one. filling right. my home with, like, sheepskin rugs anytime soon. You're um, not? Or very, very specific kinds of lamps. <laughs> um, but... You know, there are aspects of this that I think anyone can incorporate. Definitely the social aspects where, you know, you take time to spend quality time with people that you really love or enjoy their company, you know. Yeah. I don't know. It it just made me, it was, it was odd, like, reading a lot of that in, like, pandemic goggles and, like, you know... Because that's, like, a lot of people have had their social lives, like, really disrupted. Yeah. Um, But then a lot of people probably realized that their social life wasn't healthy to begin with, maybe? I don't know. Um, But, yeah. That's the little book of Hugo. Hmm. Um, All right. And on that note, we can uh, move on over to the discussion questions. We are back with our discussion questions, and uh, I'm going to start this one out with, um, have you read any other science fiction or fantasy that's based on Middle Eastern cultures? Because this was actually the first one that I had read. So, the answer is yes, I have. Um, Good, I can add them to my reading list. (laughs) Well, Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, <laughs> okay. So, obviously, a, a lot of other fantasies that I've read, especially if they're epic fantasies, we're working with, like, giant worlds. Um, there's usually an area, a region, a country that is based off of Middle Eastern culture. Mm. Just like there's usually a country based off of, like, Asian culture. Mm-hmm. Um kind of cliche it's it's more rare i think to find one that's just based entirely within right. middle eastern culture and that's like the the culture of the protagonist mm-hmm. um but i have read a couple 
or kind of. We'll get to that. Okay. So um, the first one that came to mind was I have read The Wrath and the Dawn, which is a YA retelling of the Thousand and One Arabian Nights. Thousand and One Nights, Arabian Nights, you know, the, yeah. the big long classic yeah. with Shahrazad telling stories to the king so he doesn't kill her. Um, yeah, so it's like a reinterpretation, retelling. Um, I was not impressed. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll just say, I was not impressed by that, that book at all. Like, not at all. Um, it was just a very standard YA book to me, personally. I know a lot of people out there really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a series. Um, I just, I finished the, I mean, I finished it. So it, was, it wasn't, like, terrible. It just wasn't um, inspiring, I guess. I didn't feel the need to run out and get the second one. Mm. Um, although I will say, what I from what I remember, um, most of the characters just annoyed me. There was also an element of toxic romance, which is present in a lot of YA books, and I'm really tired of it. Yeah. I'm just tired of it. Um, so I didn't like that either, but... The descriptions of food made me want to go run out and eat Middle Eastern food. Like, oh my god. Delicious, man. (laughs) I was just, like, reading some of the descriptions of food, and I was like, oh my god, it sounds so good. (laughs) (laughs) So, that's good, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't, like, actively discourage people from reading it, because, like I said, I know a lot of people enjoyed it, but it just wasn't, it just wasn't for me. Um... I also started reading We Hunt the Flame, mm. um, which is a fantasy that is set in a Middle Eastern-inspired world. Um, I will not make any judgments on the quality of that book because I did not manage to finish it before my library loan expired. So um, I didn't finish it, but not because it was bad, just because... I didn't have time to get to it. Um, But yeah, those were the only two that I could even think of Mm. um, that were based primarily off of Middle Eastern culture. Yeah, the only other one that I could really think of um, was A Dead Jinn in Cairo, which I literally read like three weeks ago. Um, And then there's, I think, um, The City of Brass. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, yeah, I, it's it's I had to like lean around because it's literally on my shelf right there, staring at me. Um, I haven't read it yet. I haven't read it either. It's on my TBR though. Yeah, it's. I've heard really good things about. I've it. I've heard it's great. Um, and that the sequels are also equally as good. So I'm excited yeah. to read it. Um, it, it's it's right there next to the Queens of Inisleer, just staring at me. Um, one day I'll get to it. <laughs> the cover is beautiful too. Yeah. So, next question. Um What do you think about a fantasy novel that has such obvious parallels to real life societies and does this lead to problematic content, uh for example, damaging stereotypes? I bring this up because I also read Tiger's Daughter. Um a while ago, and I know that there were a lot yeah. of people online that were sort of picking that apart because it is based on like far eastern um cultures and yeah it is still a fantasy novel, so they didn't really like stick to the exact cultures of 
Far Eastern society, and they got called out. The author got called out a lot for that, um, mm. which I can't really speak to that because I don't know much about that. But thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I think books are like an amazing space to deal with or address real world issues. Um, and I think any book does this to some extent, like books aren't written in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Um, so even if you do set a book, you know, in a fantasy world or you're writing the most mundane story about ordinary people, like it's still going to in some way be connected to the, the real world. Like you can't avoid that, mm -hmm. you know? And the power of books to critique is one of the main things that keeps me reading, I think. Um, some of the best literature out there is books that are critiquing um, or addressing real-world issues. Mm. Um, so if you think of, like, any of the... Not any, but, like, a lot of the, you know, literature you're forced to read for school, for example. You know, 1984... Mm. Brave New World, um, A Handmaid's Tale. Like, I don't necessarily love those books, but, like, they're important or thought-provoking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're they're an important part of uh, critiquing society, I guess. Um, so, I think it's fine if a fantasy novel draws obvious parallels mm -hmm. to real-life quote, real-life societies. Um, however, I think any author can fall victim to utilizing stereotypes. Um, you know, it can be a really fine line of critiquing a stereotype and, you know, like, will your readers misinterpret what you're doing? Right. Because I think sometimes that can happen. Um and I don't, I don't know if that's the case with this book or not, but I also, I do know that authors, you know, if they go outside their comfort zone of what they know, they can fall into that trap mm -hmm. of using stereotypes um, to write about something they're maybe not really familiar with. Um, they may not even be aware that they're using stereotypes because stereotypes can be something that you're just brought up with as part of your internal bias. You may or may not even realize you're doing it because you just have kind of a an image of the culture you're talking about um, that you may think is accurate right. and may not be accurate. I think probably the best discussion of a false concept or false perception of a culture would be um, Edward Said's Orientalism. Yeah. Um, excellent, excellent book, by the way. <laughs> Had to read that for um, grad school. Um so yeah, I think it's definitely something that the authors can do. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't discourage fantasy authors or science fiction authors from writing about real world stuff because I think it's important and it can be a really great element of of critiquing things. Right. Um, but this is why you know careful editing, beta readers, sensitivity readers. All of those are really important, mm. um, you know, so like sensitivity readers are readers from the particular group that you are writing about. 
Um, so if you like, I know there's there's tons of different kinds of sensitivity readers these days. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're writing about a disabled person and you don't have a disability, it's probably important that you get a sensitivity reader who is disabled and can help you critique how you've written a character. You know, if if you're um, treating them fairly, if you're not, you know, using any stereotypes, if you're portraying a disability accurately, that sort of thing. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's really important. Um, anytime, I mean, even if you are in your writing in your so-called comfort zone, I mean, you definitely need to get outside feedback on it right. before it goes out. I mean, you'd hope your editor would catch that, but like, there's so much, there's so much sketchy stuff out there. Yeah. That gets yeah. <laughs> so, like, clearly that's not going to happen all of the time. Sure. So, yeah. Hmm. I don't disagree on any particular point. I was actually just curious what you thought, because... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember back to that that tiger's daughter um, mm. critique. I don't know review that I read. Um, I kind of thought they unjustly piled that on there because they were almost like you know, they don't do this in this culture. And I'm like, it's it's fantasy. It's not supposed to be exactly that culture. There's there's some leeway allowed yeah. there. Um, yeah. Which I kind of maybe that wasn't what what the reviewer meant. That was sort of how I I took their comment and sort of actually pissed me off a little bit. <laughs> like, Well, it's, it's difficult because, you know, once you've written something, it's no longer yours right. in a sense because readers are going to interpret it how they're going to interpret it. And there's nothing you can do about that. Um, but there is a difference between you know, using a culture as inspiration, mm. but ultimately creating creating something different because it's set in a in a fantasy world right. or a science fiction world or whatever, mm. and consciously or unconsciously falling back into using stereotypes of that culture to supply the structure for your own world. Right. I yeah. guess. And yeah, I think some of that is just down to like personal opinion on what something is or is not yeah i I Um, think that in this case that was definitely that and like the reason it irritated me so much was like making it sounded like she was making rules for what writers could or could not write about i was like that i don't like that yeah i don't like that at all um oh there's there's a lot of that out there some of which i agree with and some of which i don't i um there was so there was one review in Goodreads in particular that brought up a lot of points about um, the blood print that, I mean, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, made it sound like a problematic book. Mm. And, um, you know, namely the, the constant referral to character skin tone mm. um, and also the association of some characters to, like, hypersexuality versus other characters to, like, celibacy. Um, namely that Sienna, who is dark, dark-skinned, dark mm-hmm. much darker-skinned than Arian, who's literally, her name is Arian. Yeah, yeah that wasn't a good, <laughs> um, that was not a good name choice. No, it wasn't. Um, but namely that Sienna was often portrayed as being more sexual and that was 
interpreted by Arian in a negative way, mm. um, which makes a little more sense in the context that they're supposed to be celibate. Um, but, you know, that is a huge problem that traditionally people of African descent have been portrayed as being hypersexual. You know, that that is one of those racist tropes. Yeah. So I, and then also kind of the argument that Aryan, there was, there was references to the toxic romance that was happening. Oh yeah, that is totally there. <laughs> um, that is a legitimate Yeah, and critique. so I, I was, I was interested, you know, because I haven't read it. So obviously I have no idea. Like, I don't know if these critiques are, yeah. are fair or not. So I was interested on, on your opinion on that um all right so i've actually got the review up uh so i'm gonna they they helpfully bullet pointed it for us um so i'll go down the bullet points it was very long yeah it's it was very it was very long um the bullet points do help though okay so the first bullet point is that there are parallels between uh the talisman and isis and that they're heavy-handed and obvious the claim is very much the quran yeah accurate um yeah. The how the claim is used as a magic source is not understand and gets confusing. Yes. Um very accurate. Mm. I have no idea how the claim works. Um sometimes she says the exact same verse and it has different effects. I don't know. I don't know. It's a very soft magic system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. I like it. I don't know. Um I get that though. It is a little bit confusing sometimes so yeah that is fair um okay point number two plot dump yeah i mean that happens on occasion um it does from what i remember it does get better in book two um and book two does have a much higher rating on goodreads and i don't know if it's just because we weeded out all of the non uh the people that didn't the like non fans, <laughs> yeah. So I don't or it legitimately got better. So I don't, I don't know. Um, book two yeah. is, in my opinion, much better. I'm gonna keep that in mind. Okay. Um, let's see. Stakes are there's pretty much no negative consequences. It's dull. Okay, I wouldn't say that it's dull. Um, I was never like under the impression that Arian was ever going to be seriously hurt. You know. Nothing bad was going to happen to Diana mm. and, like, Sienna that's not going to get resolved at some point. Um, the people are going to get killed off our minor character. So, yeah. Also fair. Which I think is is kind of the standard for a lot of fantasy. Yeah. It, it, it's not Game of Thrones. low. Yeah. I mean, it, that's why I think, like, books like Game of Thrones are so shocking for people mm-hmm. is because they're just not used to it. Because most fantasy, I mean, like... The main character obviously is not going to die. The major characters usually are not going to die. And if they are, it's going to be in book three of the trilogy. So, you know, yeah. like, yeah. All accurate. Um, uh, next point, author uses omniscient narration, but uh, infrequently and clumsily. Also fair. Um, the book mm-hmm. is like 95% from Arian's point of view, and then maybe like a paragraph from someone else's with like, it's like, Here's Sienna's thoughts for two sentences. And we're back to Arian. Um, fair. Fair. Okay. Plot was terrible. I don't agree. Um, all right. And this is, I think, where we're getting to the point here about the feminist story. And then Arian is basically 
fawning at Denyar's feet. Um, and there's no queer characters. So, borderline misogynistic. I don't completely agree with this point because the men are just as much enthralled by Arian as Arian is by Dinar. It's equal opportunity attractive mm. people here. Um, and there are no queer characters in this book. Um, there is one uh. in book two, at least, at least one, maybe two. There's some tension there. We don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> shit happens. Um, so that point is fair-ish. Um, I don't generally disagree. I could see why you wouldn't like that. I mean, obviously, uh, Arian and Dinar's relationship is fairly toxic. Is not great. Yeah, yeah. it's not great. <laughs> um, I do remember her in book two basically telling him to go fuck himself at some point. So, like, I'm here for that. Um... I'd be interested to see how that goes on in book three, if maybe there's a little bit more of a growth. Does the relationship improve? Yeah. Does she move on? Right. Does, you know, like... Yeah. 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 Um, in which case, you know, I would be there for that, too. I think that that's fair. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Arian is kind of like all... It, it, it talks a lot about how attractive... Denyar is, but also about how attractive Arian is. Um, okay, next point is the Sienna point. Uh, she's black. Um, she's often jealous of Arian, who is very pale-skinned. Uh, has got green eyes. Um, does mention how exotic she is, Sienna. Um, yeah. And that Sienna's entire existence seemed to be rooted in being Arian's loyal companion. This is fair. Um, this is a very fair yeah. critique. Um, there aren't any other explicitly black characters. Um, she is treated exotically because nobody in this area has come across someone from what is essentially Africa. Um, yeah. Her job literally is to be Arian's protector. Like, that that's literally her job. Um, mm. And then, yeah, she does get jealous because all of the men are paying attention to Arian, and she does, on a couple of occasions, like, you know, um, that Russian tribal leader, she was kind of, like, into yeah. him. Like, she probably would have given up her vows to hook up with that dude. Um, like, to marry him. And she does, like, rib yeah, Arian well, a lot okay. about the whole Dinar thing. Like, she just likes to mess with her. Um, I will say she is not the only female character who is, you know, flirting with breaking those rules, because Ilya is as well. Um, Ilya is, however, painted in, like, this treacherous sort of light, so, yeah, you know, that's, there is that aspect to it. So I think that that, that is all very fair. Um, I guess, like, because to me, the the real question is, Obviously, like, the character's job can be to be, like, a companion. Like, yeah. within the story, her job is to, like, assist Arian. But I think where the more problematic aspect would come in would be if that was, like... Like, if there was no further character development outside of that role. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that doesn't happen in this book. Um, yeah. It's, it's literally about their journey and Sienna's fitting into that journey, which is just her, her job. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, at the end of the story, Sienna does get sort of, like, 
moved away from this group, so there's a little bit more room to expand on her character now that she's not just following Ariad around on her yeah. quest. Um, and I do yeah. remember there actually being a little bit more of growth in her character, especially because she's put into an extremely stressful situation. Um, like I mentioned, that jail she's being sent to pumps you full of drugs um, and tortures you. So, like, yeah, some shit hits the fan in book two. Um, so I, I remember there being more character development for her in book two when she's removed from just that, that role as the job. Yeah. Because that is, like, there's there's no character development outside of that except for her jealousy of Arian, which is not really character development. It's just, like, there. Um, yeah. So for this book, I'd say all of that is a fair critique. Which is part of what makes book two so much better. Yeah. Um, well, I know you had mentioned, you'd mentioned that, like, because we were picking this for books we love, but, like, this wasn't really exactly the book that you loved it's, yeah, it's out not. of the series. Yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't going to throw yeah. everybody into be like, oh, hi, by the way, there's a book number one, but go read it before you even listen to this podcast episode. Fuck you guys. Here we go, book two. Like, yeah. Um, we're going to give you a summary of the second book yeah. in the series. That seemed like a dick move, so I wasn't going to do that to y'all. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, it's a series that I love. The first book is, it just, you know, it's there to set up the story. Um, yeah, the, the last critique that this person said was it was utterly boring and lifeless. Um no intrigue or suspense, and that she didn't care about the cliffhanger because she didn't care about anything. I don't agree with those points. Clearly clearly you don't agree with that no, one. No, I don't. I don't agree with <laughs> yeah. that one. Um, like, I think this book, or um, The Black Con, Queen of Crows, which is um, the second book of The Armored Saint, and then the second book after Tiger's Daughter all came out in the same month, so I was texting all my friends, like, if you don't see me this month, don't worry, I'm fine, I'm just busy for, like, reading. Yeah, so yeah, I was just, like, the second it came out, I was at the bookstore, in line, buying yeah. it, like, I need to know what happens next. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'd say that, that critique was, that point was bullshit, at least. The other points have some merit. I will give it that. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that brings us to the last question. That does bring us to the last question. We've been talking about. <laughs> um, so, I we've already mentioned this. I don't know how many times at this point. It's book two that I'm here for. Yeah? So, yeah. are there any series that you have read um, that have a shaky first book, but you stuck with it and you ended up really liking the next book in the series, or vice versa, where there's an excellent first book and then a really shaky, like, sequels. Yeah. So, um, we're gonna have some unpopular opinion time oh, here. Okay. Uh, perhaps. Um, so, first of all, For the first part of that question, shaky first book that improves with the rest of the series. Um, typically, if I do not like the first book, I do not read any further. So, 
it was really hard to think of an example where I had been iffy about the first one and then continued to read, except for one that I did recently, which was, oh, I think it's Holly Black, um, mm. The Cruel Prince and The Wicked King, I think mm. is the second one. Um, but both of those books were trash, so... <laughs> I uh, I know that's an unpopular opinion. I know there are people that are just absolute rapid fans about those books. I do not understand it. I think they're absolute trash. Um, the only reason the only reason I read the second one was because so many people were raving about the. I was just like, well, maybe I'll keep trying. It was so it was like outside opinion. Um, lots of people were talking about that book, so I was like, well, you know, maybe it will get better. Hint, it did not. It did not get any better. It was still shit. I, man, that's so harsh. I I don't think I've ever been that Ooh, harsh. Yeah. <laughs> I a book on this podcast. I don't think you have. I thought, I thought those books were trash. Um, All right. Noted. So I don't, I couldn't think of any other examples. And it did, wasn't even really an example because the second one wasn't an improvement on the first one. Um. I do have a couple of examples about series that have deteriorated mm. for me. And I think this is probably also where I'm going to lose some people. Um, the Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. Oh, interesting. Um, I really loved the first book. Okay. I really loved The Hunger Games. I thought it was great. I thought it was a really great example of YA. Um and then the second one was fine. Mm. I was just like, good, we have the exact same scenario again in the second book. Cool. <laughs> Yay. Um, and then the third one, I didn't even bother finishing to read it. Um, there was a good, like, 50 to 75 pages mm. where they're, like, rampaging through the capital, um going through all the weird traps and stuff. I didn't even read it because I wasn't even interested. Hmm. All right. Um, I I just wanted to know the end. So I think I read like the last like five pages or something. Um, Yeah. I, I, that, that series really deteriorated for me. Um, I just did not like the direction that either the second or the third book went. Mm. Um, I actually didn't hate like the ending ending where like, Instead of executing Snow, you know, she, like... I'm sorry if I'm ruining this for anyone, but, like, it's been out for years. Um, <laughs> instead of executing Snow, she, like, kills the other lady instead. Um, I thought that was great. Mm. But... I, other than that, I was just, like... I wasn't interested. I wasn't interested the whole time. I was just reading because I was just, like, trying to finish the series. Right. Um... The other example of this that I could think of was uh, Cassandra Clare's The Mortal Instruments series, mm. um, which is just one of her many series that are based within the Shadowhunter world. Um, the Mortal Instruments was the first series that she wrote within this world, um, and City of Bones was, like, great. I absolutely loved it. Um, I don't know that I would like it as much reading it again because mm -hmm. it's been a while and I've like grown up a lot and I have quite a lower tolerance for YA fiction than I than I used uh, to that's fair. um 
I really, I, I have a hard time with it sometimes lately. Um, but I really loved it at the time. It was like a really new concept for me. Um, and it was interesting and it was great. And it had toxic romance, which I appreciated at the time and don't anymore. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, the teen years. It just, <laughs> it just kept going. Like originally it was supposed to be a trilogy and then she just kept writing books in this series. And I think there are either six or seven of them mm. in, in the Mortal Instruments series. And then she's got like all these other series that all have multiple books in them. It's like a lot. Yeah. Okay. It's it's too much for me. Um, but it just, oh my God, they started getting so bad and so weird. And there was just like a lot of like weird incest and like, yeah. well, it, there wasn't like actual incest, but like the main character's, like, demon half-brother, like, totally wanted to, like, get with her. And it was just weird. And I... No, thanks. Yeah, that that really went off a cliff. No, thank you. I don't don't think I've read all six. I think I read through book five, and, like, the fifth one was just so bad for me Mm. that I just didn't even bother with the last one. So, on the other hand... Her Infernal Devices series is wonderful, and I love it, and I would recommend it to everyone. Oh, okay. Noted. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the Moral Instruments just really, really declined for me. All right. So, I think The Bloodprint is the only, like, shaky book that I had that got better. There's, like, The Mirror mm, yeah. Empire, which was shaky, and then that got fucking worse. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there was, okay, so Terry Goodkind's Sword of Truth series. I read far more of those books than I would ever want to admit. Um, he has more of my money than I ever wanted to give him. Um, the first book started out decent. Is that? Sword of Truth series. Okay, okay. Um, so the first book started out decent and then just progressively got worse. Oh my god. Mm. On the other hand, so like the Armored Saint, which is by Mike Cole, and that's kind of like um, the it's kind of like Joan of Arc origin story, but in a world where there's mm. magic and demons, and magical artifacts. So yeah, whatever. Um, that book started out pretty good, and then this like the second book was sort of shaky. Um, it's a trilogy though, so I'm I'm wondering if like it's just that second book slump until you get to the third one, because um, you're just setting up all the shit for the big climax. Um, same thing happened with Tiger's Daughter, actually. Uh, Phoenix Empress was kind of a letdown um, in comparison. Yeah. Which, remember when I said earlier, I went to the bookstore like the same month and I picked out The Black Con, The Queen of Crows, and yeah. Phoenix Empress, and I read them all in quick succession. The Black Con was actually the last one I got to, because I was so excited about the other two. And then those yeah. ended up being disappointments, and then the Black Con was like, this is so much better. Um, hmm. So it was a weird reading month for me that month. Um, yeah, I think those are the, the main series. I mean, there's always like that, that second book slump in a trilogy, which just... It's really hard to maintain quality through an entire trilogy. It, yeah, it is. I think... Especially with how quickly publishers typically want you to pump the books out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really difficult to maintain quality. 
So I think for me, a lot of series just decline in, in quality. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I feel really bad for authors, like putting all this pressure on them. Cause then there's, um, Patrick Rothfuss who did, uh, the name of the wind is the first book and a slow regard for silent things is the second one. And the first book mm-hmm. came out 10 years ago and we're still waiting on book three. Cause he's essentially put so much pressure on himself. Cause he got so yeah. much hype for those first two books that he hasn't put out the third one yet. Um, yeah. It's like, sorry, dude. Cause he wants it to be, he wants it to be yeah, perfect. He wants it to be just um, as good. Yeah. We're all just like chomping at the bit for it. Cause it's going to be great. The story, this, the series is amazing. If you haven't read it, maybe wait until book three comes out because it will drive you crazy. Not knowing how it ends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking from experience. Um, but the first two books in that series are, they're both great. There's no second book slump there. It gets progressively better. The character development is great. The plot is great. Um, he deserved all the hype he got for that. And I, like, I feel bad because even his editor is just getting frustrated at this point. Like, where is it? Like, performance I need anxiety. It. Performance anxiety. Yikes. Yeah. Um, all right. All right. I think that's all I got for discussion. Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and head on. Head on over to Creative's Corner. Okay, so for Creative's Corner, uh, this episode, we're going to talk about a YouTube channel called Biographics. Um, Yes, I am a big fan of this channel. I watch it all the time. Like... When I'm at home eating dinner, I usually pop on one of these episodes. Mm. It's like a 20-minute one um, of a single person. Occasionally, they'll do things like the plague as, you know, the history of the the bubonic plague, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, They literally put one out on Edward the Confessor, one of the last Saxon kings, um, this week. So I was 100% on board for that one. Um, There is, I'm pretty sure, an Andrew Carnegie uh, episode to tie it back to your previous one. Um, There are also, you know, more modern people. There's a... Osama bin Laden. Um, there's a lot of like Nazi figures if you're into World War II history, um, like the entire mm. life story. So how they got involved in the Third Reich is always there. Um, they've done series on like um, Roman emperors that they're still putting out, uh, philosophers. Mm. There's a lot of really cool, very interesting people um, for just about any time period. So if you are a curious type, I would suggest going and hitting that up um they said it's about like 20 to 30 minute episode so it's a good little thing to pop on while you're eating dinner all right well we'll definitely pop a link to that channel in the show notes for sure mm-hmm. um if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our other episodes please do consider leaving us a review Uh, You can also follow us on social media to keep up with all the latest BBE news. We have a Twitter, we have an Instagram, both of them at big underscore book underscore energy. Uh, We also have a website, bigbookenergy.com, and that is where all of the show notes go. I am almost caught up. I am so close. I only have one more, the last bonus episode of season one 
needs to get written. And then obviously we just had a bonus episode come out, yeah. so I haven't done those yet, but I am so close. Um, but yeah, so you can head on over to bigbookenergy.com if you want to see any of the show notes, if any of the items or segments in the episode have interested you, that is where you can find all the links to those. Um, you can also support the podcast while also getting awesome books. Um, we have an affiliate store with bookshop.org. So any of the books that we talk about in the episode, whether that's the main book for the episode or for the BB bookstore segment, um, you can find copies of those in our affiliate store. So we get a small percentage of that. You're helping a small independent bookseller and you're getting an awesome book. So it's a win, win, win. And we also have a Patreon set up if you would like to support us that way. Um, we actually do have a new Patreon supporter. Yeah, we do. For our brand new tier, too. So a big welcome to our first book mage, uh, Diana. Yay, Diana. Yay, Diana. Woo! Um, if you would also like to become a Patreon supporter, you can head on over to patreon.com slash bigbookenergy should you choose to be either a book ninja or a book mage you will get some extra content in particular some rather long bonus episodes Uh, this season we're doing movie magic Uh, last season we did a deep dive on Tolkien Um, if either of those sound interesting to you uh, head on over there become one of our followers get long episodes alright well thanks for listening everyone we'll see you next time Bye. Bye. Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and head on, head on over to Creative's Corner. As if it's a place that we (laughs) can go to. (laughs) Move on over. Just walk this way. Um, all right. (laughs)